This is Persuasion in the Public Mind. I'm Mark Bourdine. When we think about interpersonal persuasion, the first thing that comes to mind is our face-to-face interaction with another person. While that is the main focus of our conversation today, the methods we use for interpersonal communication are increasingly mediated, email and Facebook being prime examples. In addition, media facilitate the development of emotions, needs, and values, which then play a role in how we communicate with others. The ability of individuals to identify with other people rests in part on the relationship they have with those people. With me today to discuss some of the introductory issues in the study of interpersonal persuasion is David Keating, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at California State University, Northridge. Today, David, I'd like to start our conversation by introducing what researchers have identified as the variables that influence how people communicate with each other. I'm referring to things like attraction, dominance, or involvement. And I'm wondering if you can give us a brief description of what these titles mean and how they fit in with a theory of interpersonal persuasion. Yeah. Attraction, I I think we would primarily think about as physical attractiveness as one of the the big uh, aspects, in particular when we're talking about persuasion and compliance gaining uh, behavior. So attraction... Physical attractiveness, uh, you know, there might be some objective features associated with that that folks in other fields apart from mine have identified, like symmetry of the face. Uh, Yeah, I think about attraction in terms of perceived attraction or subjective attraction. So just because someone might not be, quote unquote, objectively attractive, I might find that person attractive, either Mm -hmm. physically or maybe socially. But the idea of attraction, I mean, we might boil down to liking of that person. And um, whether or not we like that person might be because they have a great personality, so social attractiveness, or because they're good looking to us, so physical attractiveness. So when we like folks, Typically, we want to interact with those folks. Mm-hmm. So that's one uh, variable that you talked about. When you say dominance, I tend to think a little bit more about, I guess, social power. Like, the, uh, for instance, the, you might think about the classic French and Raven uh, typology. So there's this ty- typology. I think it's from the 50s or 60s, if my memory serves. Uh, the idea is that people have different bases of power. So, for instance, someone might have high expertise. We might um, bestow some sort of social power upon that person, or there might be uh, some other reason, like this person has the ability to punish me or reward me in some way. So uh, I might view that person as having power in some sense. But social power uh, might be another uh uh, variable that impacts persuasion. So for for instance, someone who is high in social power, all other things being equal, they just might be more persuasive, regardless of the type of persuasive strategy they use. So more, more uh, effective communication skills. Maybe, kind of yeah. I mean, there might be folks, though, who are effective communicators that are low in social power. So like, for instance, uh, if just to put it in like a workplace setting, uh, there might be uh, folks who just joined the organization and they're uh, kind of like a mid-range in terms of their employment at the organization, in terms of their actual position with uh, the company. But even though they're sort of above people, below other people in terms of their strict position, they themselves might be viewed as being low in power because they just got there, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe it's based off of their 
ability to communicate effectively or there might be other things going on but again it comes back to like for for me as someone interacting with that person what do i view as their relative social power maybe you know at work they're uh my boss and so i bestow high power or high uh um expertise upon that person but take that same person and now they're my friend i might view them as having no social power because they're the follower in the friendship group. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, it's contextual uh, in that sense. Got it. Right. Um, when talking about involvements, um, I'm not quite sure as an interpersonal sort of communication variable what we might be talking about if that's involvement in the relationship. But what folks who study persuasion and social influence kind of when we talk about involvement, often we're talking about involvement with the issue. So is the is the issue that I'm being persuaded on something that I'm involved in, which is to say something that's relevant to me, something that I view as important. So, um, for instance, if I'm, you know, a college student on campus and uh, I, I see a bunch of persuasive messages about getting out and voting for a council member, I might not view that as very relevant to me. I might not be highly involved. But if signs around campus are like, hey, you got to go out and vote to keep tuition down, that is probably something that's very uh, highly, I'm very highly involved in something that is personally relevant to me, something that directly affects me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when folks are more involved with whatever the issue is, they tend to think uh, more critically about whatever that uh, persuasive message they get is. Okay. Um, but involvement so, could also include uh, perhaps um, some type of uh, close uh, or intimate uh, relationship or uh, uh, okay. trust, yeah. trusting relationship, something like that. Yeah, I think so. If if you're talking about involvement in terms of relationship closeness, you know, all other things being equal, I think you would probably expect that people we feel more close to or people who have uh, are better able to persuade us, better able to convince us to do things that uh, they want us to do. So that maybe that's kind of connected to that liking piece again. People that we like, you know, mm-hmm. I, for instance, your spouse, you like that person a lot. I would I, w- I would assume, or your brother, that'd be someone I would I would assume. Uh, a random person would like very much unless they have, you know, an acrimonious relationship, but liking of that person, closeness with that person, they're not the same thing, but in terms of their impact on the persuasion process, I think you would speculate they would have very similar uh, types of impacts. Mm -hmm. The more I like someone, the closer I feel to someone, all of the things being equal, I'm probably more persuaded by that person. Well, probably the most widely studied aspect of interpersonal persuasion is something called compliance gaining, or the use of persuasive strategies to promote a certain type of behavior in another person. Researchers uh, Gerald Marwell and David Schmidt came up with some general strategies, and I'd like you to tell us a little about uh, these ideas and how they are applied in real-life situations. Yeah, so the... The Marwell and Schmidt uh, compliance gaining typology uh, was one of the, I, I think, one of the earliest, if not the earliest one in this domain. And since then, there are a few others that have kind of popped up. And some of the compliance gaining tactics from Marwell and Schmidt, some of them stick around in other people's typologies. Some of them get dropped out. Hmm, okay. So um, there is kind of some uh, gray area with what you know, the list of these strategies are, but right. um, at a basic level, yeah, like the compliance gaining strategies they've, they've talked about, there are potentially more sort of quote unquote positive strategies, more quote unquote negative strategies. 
um, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, before I before I go too far in that, though, I do want to uh, emphasize something you said, which is that there's uh, when we're talking about compliance gaining, there is an emphasis on behavior. So, for instance, if I'm a parent at a grocery store and my uh, child uh, is uh, throwing a tantrum about getting uh, a box of cereal, I might not care about influencing their attitudes or beliefs about something. I just want them to behave a certain way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if I'm a parent and my, my kid's playing out by the, uh, a busy street, I don't necessarily care how they feel about playing at the busy street. I just want them to stop doing it. So right. when we talk about compliance gaining, we really are emphasizing that we're influencing or attempting to influence people's behaviors regardless of how they feel. They might be someone whose attitudes and beliefs change or don't change, but that's not what we care about when we're trying to gain compliance. It really is behavioral. Uh, When we talk about persuasion more generally, persuasion, the emphasis is on changing people's attitudes, beliefs, these things that exist in their head. Um, And maybe their behavior changes, but that's not really what we care about. So I just wanted to quickly okay. make yeah. that distinction to emphasize that fair enough yeah. um but uh yeah so these you know these different strategies marwell and schmidt came up with uh these things like debt um so calling in a favor might be another way of talking about it like hey i did something for you in the past um so i would like you to engage in this behavior for me so for instance let's say a buddy of mine uh needed help with uh uh moving something and then I now have to move my stuff into my new apartment, I call in that favor. Um, so that would be a, one potential way uh, to gain compliance, for instance, uh, that maps onto Marwell and Schmidt's uh, typology. Okay. Another sort of uh, category in there, this emphasis on liking. So, you know, saying, hey, you know, like you're a good friend of mine. Please help me out with moving my stuff this weekend. Mm-hmm. So that might be another way we try to gain compliance. Like I said, the, the list of these strategies from Marwell and Schmidt, uh, these ones I've already said, they might be uh, more positive or negative. So like debt, we might uh, think of like calling in a favor as maybe a middle of the road. It's not a very positive tactic. It's not a very negative tactic. Um, saying like, hey, you're my friend. You want to help me out, right? That might be a little bit more of a positive tactic. But there, there are also more negative tactics, like if you don't do this for me, I will punish you in some way. And like, that doesn't need to mean anything uh, physical. It could Mm -hmm. be something like a social punishment. Um, So there are those more negative strategies as well. Okay. Um, Then uh, they talk about um, the expertise angle. Um, uh, An example that uh, comes to mind uh, for me is... uh, when uh, a parent says to a child, uh, I, w- I want you to do something because it's good for you. Um, uh, can you think of any other examples uh, like that? Yeah, so uh, that, that's, you know, parents telling their children to do things and relying on this, like, I know better than you. That, you know, in general is uh, uh, some sort of appeal to the expertise that that person has. Um, so a parent using that on a child, if it's framed as I know more about whatever than you do, that's certainly expertise. Um, other examples of expertise, you know, for instance, let's say I am someone who is in, uh, has a political standing. I might make an appeal to uh, my constituency, something to the effect of like, like I know what I'm talking about, folks. Believe me when I say these things, you need to get out and vote for this person. Mm -hmm. Um, So that might be 
uh, a way in which someone's making an appeal to expertise again, but the, the underlying tactic is coming back to, I know more about something than you. And if you do this thing, that will uh, lead to some sort of positive outcome for you, or it might help you avoid a negative outcome. Uh, But it's all coming back to like, I know better. I know better. Yeah. And then um, Marwell and Schmidt uh, also uh, mentioned uh, what they call activation of internalized commitments, which is um, kind of uh, technical jargon. uh, But um, uh, I I think what they're referring to there perhaps is to – reinforce uh, positive feelings perhaps in someone? Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah, so this idea yeah. of um, activizing, uh, activizing, activating, yeah. uh, internalized, I think I was trying to say activate and internalize at the same time. <laughs> but this idea, uh, this idea of internalization is that you're, you're trying to take advantage of things that people already think and feel. So if I, let's say, I'm someone who is very staunch uh, conservative, for instance. I might have an internalized sort of value that I place on uh, the economy. Like, I want the economy to do well. I want the economy to do well. So something that who's trying to gain compliance from me, something they might do is try to target that particular internal belief or internal value that I have to try to bring about compliance with with the request. Mm -hmm. So if someone has that type of internalized or in this hypothetical example, uh, I have this internalized value of like the economy is the most important thing. It needs to be doing well. And someone wants me to, to uh, uh, let's say donate to their cause or donate to a political campaign. They might say like, uh, you care about the economy, don't you? Well, you should donate to candidate X. So that might be a way that the persuader is trying to get the, the target of persuasion to do something, but it's, it's really just activating what's already there for the person and, and taking that person's internal state, um, which is in this case, like a belief or a value that someone has and trying to get them to follow through on that internalized state, that internal uh, belief or attitude or value that that person has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, finally, they they talked about uh, activation of interpersonal commitments. And I think here they're uh, referring to the idea of uh, perhaps causing uh, audience members to consider um, how others will think about them. Yeah, that's... uh... I think, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. So the, when we're talking about uh, activating interpersonal commitments, there is this idea of like the way that I'm going to persuade someone is by using their uh, their feelings about someone else um, in order to gain compliance from them. So if uh, I know who your uh, 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 network is or who your sort of group that you identify with is, maybe I can use that to try to get you to behave in ways that I think are good for you. So like, for example, let's say on a college campus, and this is something that happens at many college campuses across the U S um, some, uh, uh, sometimes what, uh, an administration at a campus, uh, deems as an important public health intervention is to try to get students to drink less alcohol. So, uh, uh we want to reduce alcohol consumption among members of the campus community. In other words, mm-hmm. well, one thing we might do is uh, try to target uh, uh, individual people by appealing to the groups that they belong to. So 
for instance, if you like my alma mater uh, is University of Arizona, uh, Bear Down, go Wildcats. So if uh, I was trying to implement a, uh, uh, some sort of persuasion uh, campaign there, what I might do is make an appeal to uh, individuals about the Wildcats more broadly. So I might design persuasive messages that say Wildcats don't drink, or I might design a persuasive message that says, did you know that Wildcats in general disapprove of binge drinking? So these are different ways that I'm targeting individual people to try to get them to not drink it, by yeah. appealing to the group that they belong to. Right. And hopefully, if we really want to be effective, it should be a group that they feel strongly about being involved with. Yeah. So if I use that, but like U of A uh, students, they actually don't care about being U of A students, then it's not going to be effective. But if it's a group that has a real strong identification with one another and strong identification with the group, these interpersonal commitments that they've made to one another and to their groups, then it's it's uh, more likely for that that type of message is going to be effective mm -hmm. in gaining compliance uh, from those folks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, there's um, there's a couple of interesting strategies uh, addressing how persuaders structure their request messages uh, to gain customers' acceptance. Um, would would you give us an example of those techniques? I'm I'm referring to, of course. Uh, uh, the techniques called uh, foot in the door and door in the face strategies. Yeah. Um, so foot in the door and door in the face are two of the more well-known, I think, uh, strategies, uh, compliance gaining strategies. So in these uh, techniques, these are both what we would call a sequential message strategy. Mm -hmm. So there's a sequence of multiple requests as part of the compliance gaining tactic. Uh, so, for instance, the foot in the door tactic, uh, uh, there are two requests. The idea is that the first request should be small enough that almost anyone would say yes to it. So for instance, maybe I'm walking around asking people to sign a petition um, uh, to get where I'm trying to, I, I approach a person and say, I'm trying to get signatures uh, from people who are against um, something that's bad or who are in favor of something good. So let's say I'm trying to get signatures about the homeless issue in Los Angeles. I want to make sure that um, folks who are homeless have places to sleep, they have the basic needs uh, uh, that any of us need to survive. Okay. Um, they need those basic needs met. So I approach someone, can I get your signature? All right, yeah, like it's just a signature. Here's my name, here's my signature, done, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that small request, if I can get people to say yes to that small initial request, then it makes it more likely that my second request, which is really the request that I care about, will be effective. So if I say, hey, can I get your signature uh, to try to help homeless people in the area? They say, oh yeah, sure. And then I follow that up with my second request that I really cared about. Well, here's the second request. Uh, well, now that you've signed this, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind donating $10 to the Homelessness Fund of Los Angeles or mm -hmm. whatever the case right. may be. Right. Um, so that's the basic foot in the door. The idea is with that initial request, you get your foot in the door. And then because people have said yes the first time, it substantially increases the likelihood. It doesn't guarantee they'll say yes, but it substantially increases the likelihood they'll say yes to the second request and, that you and really care yeah, about. Yeah, and one of those reasons might be uh, based on the fact that the, the person that you're speaking with um, – it can kind of maybe create a uh, favorable impression uh, of themselves, uh, you know, that they have done a good thing. Yeah, that's actually one of the uh, the 
findings in the in the literature on foot in the door and door in the face uh, is that compliance gain these compliance gaining st- tactics tend to be more uh, have more of an impact when it's a pro-social type of behavior. Mm-hmm. So in these settings where you're helping others, uh, these types of tactics tend to be a little bit more effective than let's say if it was uh, uh, some other request that's going to benefit me and my business, but not necessarily uh, society at large. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's exactly on target. The yeah. pro-social appeals tend to be a little bit more effective than other types of appeals we might use in these two types of compliance getting tactics. And what, what about the uh, door in the face uh, strategy? What about that one? Yeah, so door in the face, uh, the idea kind of it gets inverted a little bit. So, uh, or maybe not inverted, but it's uh, maybe not intuitive. But the 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 idea is that the first request is actually the one that you want people to say no to, which is the opposite of foot in the door. You want people to say yes to a small initial request and foot in the door. With door in the face, the idea is that you start with a large request. It shouldn't be outrageous, but large enough that people are likely to say no. And then after they say no to that first request, you follow up with your second request, which is, again, the second request, that's the one you care about. And the second request is uh, uh, smaller in nature, the one that you actually care about. And because the first one was so large, the second one looks more uh, reasonable and it looks more like a compromise from the other person a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. for instance, let's say... Uh, let's say I, I'm I'm going to my parents. I'm trying to trying to get uh, some money from them because I'm I'm running low on on uh, cash and my paycheck doesn't come for another week or something like that. I might I might ask my dad, hey, like, would it be possible to get a couple hundred bucks? And like, two hundred bucks? No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you that. Mm-hmm. But then I follow that up with, all right, I I totally get it. Would, would you maybe be able to spare fifty bucks? <laughs> so the fifty dollars looks much more reasonable than the two hundred. Right. Uh, but if I had only said can I have $50 that my dad might have just said no right out, but because I opened with that larger request that was more unreasonable, uh, not outrageous, but unreasonable in the eyes of my dad in this hypothetical example, sure. they say no to that. It increases the likelihood they'll say yes to the follow-up request. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I wanted to uh, turn to uh, the topic of uh, detecting this deception in uh, interpersonal communication. And, um, from the reading I've done, uh, it seems this is far from an exact science. <laughs> uh, some uh, studies suggest that uh, deception can be associated with rehearsed responses or uh, non-specific answers or awkward uh, body language, while um, other studies are arguing that uh, verbal and nonverbal cues play a small role in detecting uh, deception. So uh, they mentioned the use of uh, third-party information, physical evidence, um, solicited confessions as being more effective. Uh, where, where do you come down on, on this uh, idea, and what uh, advice would you give? In terms of my sort of where I come down on that literature, uh, you know, I, I, I learned from uh, one of the, the folks you might have read their work, Tim Levine. So I learned from him. So I'm probably a little bit biased in towards uh, agreeing with his take on things. But there is in, in the deception detection literature, my understanding is that there's a rich body of work suggesting that people have a bias towards believing others. We call it a truth bias. So we tend to believe that other people are basically being honest with us most of the time. Now, there might be some folks who, in, some individual people in our lives who we just assume are going to be 
uh, untruthful or liars. But for the most part, most of us have a truth bias associated with most people. So that can make it challenging if I'm trying to detect deception because in general, I don't have uh, uh, suspicion towards others. In general, I have a truth bias. I have this bias towards believing people are being honest. Folks in the, in the field who study this stuff, they've been trying to figure out for a long time, like how, what's the best way to, de- to detect when people are lying to you? And yeah, there's, you know, there's a, the television shows like Lie to Me, which was kind of uh, uh, a, a well-known uh, show uh, several years ago. It might even be more than a decade old by now. But the basic idea is like, oh, if I just catch someone twitching a certain way, or someone flinching in this way or that way or crinkling the eye, then that's how they're, that's how I can tell they're, they're lying to me. Um, but the truth is that for most of us, that's just not the case. The way that people tend to detect lies is through confession, as you noted, solicited and unsolicited confession, or a third party uh, tells the information. So like if we, for instance, think about like, uh, let's say my significant other cheated on me, um, how do I find out? Well, the ways that I tend to find out are my significant other uh, just tells me, hey, I cheated on you. Oh, okay, that sucks. You lied to me. Uh, another way might be I, I notice um, uh, the other person sort of acting out of character, and I might be like, hey, like, is everything okay? And they're like, oh, yeah, fine. Everything's fine. And then I probe a little bit more. I, 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 I keep at them, and then finally say, all right, I lied to you. I cheated on you. Another way that my, uh, I might find out that they lied to me is a mutual friend who they told comes to me and says, hey, man, I just found out you're significant other has been lying to you. They're cheating on you. Sorry. So that uh, is another way that's pretty common. So the, the more common ways that everyday people, not experts, you know, like uh, customs agents or FBI agents, not those folks, mm-hmm. but the rest of us, how do we tend to detect lies? Well, the way that we tend to detect lies is people tell us when they were lying or a third party tells us that someone's been lying to us. Um, so that's not to say it, we never use nonverbal behavior, like people are acting strangely and their nonverbals are closed off. Um, But for the most part, the everyday person does not rely on those types of cues. If you'd like to know more about compliance gaining strategies, persuasive interviews, or detecting deception, there's a list of resources waiting for you under the episode description. I'd like to thank David Keating for his input on this topic and remind everyone that Persuasion and the Public Mind is available on most podcast platforms and on the web at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Thanks for listening. See you soon.